Tinakoto, Tinakoto, Tinakoto Katoa. Last week's worship, celebrating Maori Language Week, was so beautiful. And I asked Mike if we could have Tuia this morning so that we could just continue their, um, the whole, their thread in our congregation. I want to pray as we start this morning from two short prophecies in the Old Testament. This is a really difficult month for all of us as we can be battered on all sides by politicians and media, but also by our friends. Everyone has a slightly different political idea or with the internet having an opinion on everything, a radically different idea, and we are not always sure what someone is going to say. And all of this can detract from the fact that many people are still cold, unwell, grieving, or actually hungry. And housing in West Auckland just seems to be an impossibility at the moment. How do we find and share hope in this hard place? So I read these verses Firstly from Haggai, and he was looking at the ruins of the temple, but saying, the best is yet to come. And in chapter 2, he says, the later glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. So looking at the ruins around us in our country and the church as a whole at times, it's easy to conclude that the best is in the past. But the prophets were encouraging us. So we're going to pray with another man from the Old Testament, Habakkuk, and pray, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And in this place, give us peace. This message is part of our year-long series on story, which Tina has more than adequately <coughs> unpacked, on sharing story, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> on using story, and sharing so that we remember where we have come from and where we belong. And we can tell others. And perhaps most importantly, we are sharing the story of Jesus. We are spending months in the book of John, learning Jesus' story and walking alongside him as we learn from him. So today's message is from John chapter 4, 43, right through to John 5, 18. And it follows on from Josh's message from two weeks ago, where we listened to an amazing conversation between Jesus and a woman, probably the first woman in the Gospels to actively share the good news about Jesus with other people. And not just a few other people, her whole village came streaming out to see if what she said was true. And Josh emphasized right through the message, the verse from Deuteronomy 28, that God would bless them as they did the work at hand. We talked about that in our house church groups last week. Bruce usually says it as, do what's in front of your nose. 
If you want to reach out in a new community or plant a church, start a small group or a, th- or a Sunday school or a scout group or paint church buildings or wash dishes, share meals every way possible. Do what is right in front of you. And Josh was continuing to challenge us to think about how we could reach out to other people through sharing meals and food together or any other ways. And he noticed that Jess said when she shared her story a few weeks back, this is not my story, it's our story. This is not about what I need to do extra, but it is how we as the body of Christ are going to be reaching out into the community. So what is our message about today? Healing and hope, especially in times of loss. Let's listen as Kevin comes up and reads the first story to us from the last part of John 4, 53 to 54. Maybe imagining that we are one of the Galileans in the crowd or one of Jesus' disciples. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honoured in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. As he travelled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. And Jesus told him, go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. And he asked them, when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realised that that was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Thanks, Kevin. So we're going to work our way through the passage, through this passage. But I just want to say at the beginning, I was given the topic just, it was called healed, I think. And I said to the people before, whenever I've been asked to speak on healing in church, I've also said that I will only speak on healing and non-healing because most of us, if not all of us, have lost people where it doesn't seem like God answered our prayers. And I want to acknowledge at the beginning, as we're walking through this passage, which has a happy ending, that this is a hard journey for many of us. I'm going to unpack that more later on, but I just want to say that from the beginning. So we'll have the next slide. Thanks, Karen. And our last story, 
The disciples were perplexed when Jesus wouldn't eat the food that they had walked all the way to town and back to get from him. They walked in the hot noon sun, and, but he talked to them. He speaks to them about the nourishment of doing the Father's work and having their eyes open so they can see the opportunities for harvest. Then they spent two whole days with him in a Samaritan village, discipling a whole village of people. They would have been quite uncomfortable, at least to start with. The Samaritans were not actually Gentiles, but they weren't very friendly with the Jewish people either. And Jews usually avoided travelling through Samaria if they possibly could. So two days, we joined them here, two days after having their whole world tipped upside down, and they're travelling back to Galilee, back to familiar territory. And we can see, if you look carefully on the map, we have Cana in the sort of lower part of Galilee, and up the top of the lake, the longer town is Capernaum. Both of those come into our story. So they get back to familiar territory, and they have about time to breathe one breath of relief when everything changes again. And this time it's not a Samaritan woman talking to Jesus, it's a government official who was probably a Roman or a Gentile, the kind of person Jews were not even supposed to speak to. What is Jesus going to do about this man? But Jesus was constantly changing and challenging everything. In verse 42, right before today's story begins, the Samaritan villagers announce, now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. That's a huge announcement. And in this part in chapter 4, we see Gentiles believing in Jesus. There are only three stories about healing in the whole of John's book. If you want to read lots of healing stories, go and read Luke. So these are pretty significant in terms of the development of the book, and we're looking at two of them today. And the purpose of John's book was, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So John picked out the significant ones for what he was trying to tell us. So at the end of the two days, it tells us, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honoured in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him this time, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. So if you are the person in the crowd, there is huge anticipation. What might Jesus do next? And verse 46 says, He travelled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he turned the water into wine. More anticipation and more excitement. John reminds us about the first sign or miracle that Jesus had done. Will he build on this to make a big show? Apparently not. In the first part of chapter 4, Jesus has a long, very long but totally private conversation with the woman he met at the well. In this part of the story, chapter, he has a short conversation in front of a whole crowd of people. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When here he is, when we heard that Jesus, he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. 
And Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? And the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. This father was desperate. We don't know particularly why, but he did not want his son to die. He went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum. Now, that just says he went from Capernaum to Cana, but that was a journey of at least eight hours on foot. So that's quite a long winting. And he asked Jesus to make the same journey back again. Please come to Capernaum. Jesus would know full well that that was an eight-hour trip on foot. It can feel as if we've walked that far when we sit in ED for most of the day, but for the most part, medical care in New Zealand is much more available. What does Jesus say to this concerned, worried, and probably exhausted dad? Jesus asks, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? It's hard to know why Jesus asked this question just then. It would seem that the man already believed in Jesus. He's walked for eight hours because he does. Perhaps Jesus is clarifying the point for the crowd or for us reading the book centuries later. Jesus does warn in some other places in John about only following him for his miracles. That is not the kind of belief he wants. And the father of the sick boy emphasizes this by just ignoring Jesus' question and repeating his request. The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. This time the story goes the way we want it to, and we can relax and enjoy the happy ending. Then Jesus told him, go back home, your son lives. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While he was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. And the father realized that that was exactly the time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. And the fact that Jesus heals from a distance also shows his power and command over life and death. He said of his own life, I have the power to lay it down and take it up again. This is no small God we believe in and no small life that we live as a result. But what about today? Do we still come to Jesus, as that father did, asking him to heal our children or anyone else? We do, but sometimes we come with a lot of baggage as well. We may have prayed desperately for a loved one who passed on. God does answer most of our prayers by taking people home sooner or later. Or we may be just confused Healing is one topic which Christians try so hard to put into a box and give it a set of rules. If you do this and this and this, you will be healed. It doesn't work. It's totally untrue. It won't fit in any box. And if we look at Jesus healing people, he nearly always seems to do it differently to last time. When I was preparing this, I thought back and remembered. When our daughter Joanna was six weeks old, 
I took her in for her checkup with the doctor, which seemed to take. She was my second child, so I knew the examination was taking a very long time. And finally, the doctor looked up and looked at me and started with the first sentence with, I am so sorry, which are not words that you ever want to hear from a doctor. I walked out that Friday with an appointment with a heart specialist on Monday. That weekend, there was a big healing meeting going on in Christchurch City, and we took our little girl along to bring her to Jesus. The result was a very confused specialist on Monday, wanting to know why we had brought a perfectly healthy baby to see him and a healthy 44-year-old today. But... I also had a very visible eye condition at the same time, which I lived with for several years, and which was terribly embarrassing in an era where too many church people were talking about being healed by your own faith and what you had to do to make this happen. And everywhere I went, it was plainly obvious that I wasn't. They prayed for me too at that meeting, but in a way that made me totally uncomfortable and did nothing for the state of my eyes. And I share this this morning because many of us have been damaged by people who didn't give us respect. And we're going to look at that in the second chapter, when we look in the chapter 5 story today. Jesus treats the man with total respect. And this has not always been done. So now, back then, I am very confused. And it takes several years for me to relearn that we can never put God in a box. He is way bigger than that. And his primary purpose in this world is not to empty the ED departments, although that wouldn't be a bad thing. In Deuteronomy, which prompted the series on story, God reminds the people, as Ten has already told us and read to us, that he came to rescue them and dwell with them. This was unheard of. Nobody knew of a God who actually turned up did stuff and stayed with them day and night. And then he gave out instructions and had long conversations with Moses and quite often arguments. In Deuteronomy 3, Moses is pleading with God to change his mind, which he has done several times before and God always has. But this time God says, that is enough. Do not speak to me any more on this matter. This is what you are to do. I grizzled at God over my eyes for a lot of years. And eventually I heard him saying, that is enough. This is what you are to do. And that, I think, is the point. Hearing what God is saying and hanging out with him long enough to hear. When Jesus conquered sin and death at Easter and then sent us the Holy Spirit, he was continuing and completing God's purpose of dwelling with us. In Deuteronomy 4.7, the Israelites are pondering the things that made them special. And they say, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to them? Their backstory is our backstory as Christians. They had to go to the tabernacle, which was a special tent, and then to the temple to pray. We don't. Through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God lives within us and through us, and promises that he will never, ever leave us. Tina told us that she learned that God was always with her. In those long hours in the night, 
I always have someone to talk to, to argue with, or to grump at. Most times I just drift back to sleep, mid-thought. But quite often I'm surprised with new or fresh ways of looking at things that plainly didn't come from me. We all hang out with God in different ways, and it's good sometimes to just stop and ponder how it is going with us. So as a body of people who follow Jesus, how does this healing story from John make a difference? We do pray for healing all the time, but what do we do when Jesus doesn't heal? Especially little babies. We have hope that we will see these children again. But we must also put our arms around each other as people walk this difficult journey of grief and loss. Quite a few people in our church family have lost babies at various stages over the years. And we have Eddie and Evelyn with us this morning. I want to acknowledge that their little boy went home to be with Jesus only last week. Our hearts grieve with you. And I want to say to everybody else that if you read the Farnow News, there's a link for a meal train there. If you can put your love into that sort of action, please do. How do we handle it? Our grandson died a few years ago, more than halfway through a pregnancy. I didn't know what to do with my grief, partly because the family was in Australia. I still remember how comforting it was when Alana acknowledged our grief and showed me photos of her own babe, who had also passed on at birth. When I was a child, we didn't talk about these things. But that just meant that people carried the grief alone, sometimes for their whole lives. We need to share this grief together as a family. And we need to make spaces, talking spaces, so people can talk about other missing children. There is a huge amount of frustration and grief in our community at present over babies that just never happened, to ones that have been lost too early, to children who passed on in their childhood or even their teens. Our father loves the widows and the widowers and the orphans, and he tells us to care for them. He also loves the unintentionally childless, and we help love them when we make space to hear their stories, when we acknowledge that these things are happening, that it's really, really hard but we don't want to hide from it. Grief is awful, and it takes courage. Let's ask Kevin to come up again and read the second healing story from chapter, John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five coloured porches, covered porches. Crowds of sick, pe sick people, blind, lame or paralysed, lay on the porches, waiting for a certain movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water, and the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, 
the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't walk on the Sabbath, work on the Sabbath. The Lord doesn't allow you to carry your sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. Thank you. It's hard to avoid the conclusion at this point that Jesus deliberately healed this man to draw attention to himself. The crowd were obviously delighted. More excitement. The man has been healed, um, yeah, not quite, and has realized that he wanted to be made well again. But it's not easy to rebuild a new life after nearly 40 years, and he doesn't seem to have learned much. Jesus tells him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus told many people that he healed that their sins were forgiven as well. But that doesn't seem to be the right thing to say in this place. And what does the man do? He goes straight away and tells the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. Probably he wanted and needed to curry favor from the leadership. But it was still mischief-making and pushing the blame for carrying his mat away from himself without showing any apparent idea that he understood much about Jesus at all. So the man has been healed, but he doesn't seem to be a whole lot better off. So what was the point? We can always learn something from the story. One of the awesome parts of John's Gospel is the huge variety of people that we can compare and look at as we learn how to become true, faithful disciples ourselves. Now, Jesus may have intended the miracle to draw attention to his own message, but his approach to the man is really interesting. There are crowds of sick people lying everywhere, and Jesus approaches this one person and asks him, would you like to get well? If we remember Josh's message some months ago on disablement, Jesus asked the man what he wanted. He found a need, he listened without criticism, and he gave the man a choice in whether he would be healed or not. He was told to stand up, pick up his mat and walk. He could have just continued to sit there. But something about the way Jesus spoke to him empowered him to have some faith in himself as well. He got up and walked. And Jesus wanders off at that point, leaving the man to make his own way round. But later he returns to check up on him. There's a pretty amazing pattern here which we can use ourselves. Finding a need listening without criticism and giving the person a choice in what happens next and checking up later to see how they are. We can react to these stories today with gratitude 
or with it's not fair or with what about me? I'm not sure what all those other people at the pool thought about the man walking and not them. Every different person listening this morning will have a different story about healing and non-healing. And certainly we have a very much shared history in this, our little part of God's bigger church family of people being taken away much too soon. All of us have had friends or family pass away much too young by our standards. And Jesus, was he being deliberate in what he said and did? Oh yes. So we finished today's passage with the last three verses that Kevin read from 16 to 18. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So let's just remind ourselves of the key verses from today's passage. In chapter 42, the Samaritans told us, now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. And in verses 53 and 54 about the government official, he and his entire household believed in Jesus. And this was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. And then these verses where Jesus says, my father is always working and so am I. And they got mad because they knew what he was saying. They knew that by saying what he was saying, he was saying, I'm equal with God. And that's what made them mad. There was no fuzzing, no confusing it. Now, these verses up above, these verses will be unpacked much more in the next sermon, which I think is Tina. Um, Jesus called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So that's the next part to unpack. What can we take away from this passage this week? I've been reading Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright this past week, and I always like how he puts things. He's been talking about the past hope, which began at the first Easter, when Jesus conquered sin and death, and the future hope, which will be fully understood when heaven and earth are joined in the new Jerusalem. But right now, we're in the intermediate hope, if you like, the bit in the middle, which has been more than 2,000 years so far, the hope that we live with right now. And he made the interesting comment that left to ourselves, there's some very big words in here, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy, agreeing with the general belief that things may be getting worse, but there is nothing much that we can do about them. A collusion with entropy is a just doing nothing. Now, I can be quite good at that, and certainly on some days it's quite, you know, that things are getting worse, but there's nothing we can do about it. But we are wrong. Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with the way we live and worship, both as individuals and a body, showing others that hope. Jesus died 
to change the whole world. One day that task will be finished, but right now we have hope to share with the world. Put your arms around someone who is grieving this week. Reach out to someone who is struggling. And where possible, do these things with someone else so that they become part of our whole body life. Let's close this part with a prayer before we spend some time worshipping in song with Mike and the team. Lord Jesus, you were not afraid to do good things for people which drew attention to who you were and that you had come here to create a whole different way of living and worshipping and caring and dying. Help us walk a little closer to you this week so that our lives more reflect your ways of living and worshipping and caring and dying. Amen.